Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the theme of the series of sermons for this summer here at Pillar. Today, I want to take us into the Word of God as we find it in Ephesians chapter 4. But I want to begin telling you about an experience I really recently had. About a month ago, I traveled with a group of about 15 other pastors down to Ecuador on a trip sponsored by Multiplication Network Ministries. It was called a vision trip, intended for us to catch the vision of Multiplication Network and see the mission in action in a local setting. The vision is simply this, a healthy church representing the kingdom of God in every community. And the mission, just as simple and yet as profound, is to train leaders to build healthy churches and plant healthy and strong churches and plant new ones. And so we went. And the local context in which we would see this vision and mission and action was Ecuador. The biggest challenge for me, though, I have to admit, is that I was going to be on a trip with 15 other pastors for a week. That meant 24 hours every day spending it with other ministers. Do you get what I mean? Other ministers all the time. And, of course, they were from a variety of denominations and places throughout the country from the Evangelical Free Church, the Reformed Church, the Christian Reformed Church, the Baptist Church, and Assemblies of God. We would be together all the time. That was the challenge for me. There was some hope, though, in that we had our own rooms, at least, to go back to at night and sleep the night. The first day we began touring the sites where the churches were being planted, and it was clear that the work was being done in some of the poorest places in Ecuador. My heart shifted as we traveled into a place called Duran City, part of the greater Guayaquil metropolitan area in Ecuador on the coast. And after driving down some rather impassable roads, we stopped and walked into the first church, which was located in what amounted to a very narrow, single-stall-looking garage. A space, though, that soon became filled with children worshiping and on their knees praying, and then with two couples dedicating their children to dedicating themselves to raising their children in God's word in the way of salvation in Christ. We had stepped into a portal of a vision of the church that I have not seen very often in my life. There in this quiet place, God's kingdom was breaking out. The kind of thing you see when you listen to Paul casting the vision of the church in Ephesians 4. So listen along with me. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us is giving grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended, he made captivity itself captive. He gave gifts to his people. Now, when it said he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower places of the earth. The one who descended is the same one who ascended far above the heavens, so they might, he might fill all things. And the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints, to build up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be infants tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine or by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in all things into Christ, who is our head, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together with every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, builds builds itself up in love, promoting the body's growth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a beautiful vision of the church. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he begins with casting this beautiful vision of what God is doing in the world, what the kingdom of God is doing as it is unleashed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right from the start, He calls us saints. He says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been called with a calling from before time and adopted as his children. We've been given the gift of redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, an incredible inheritance, and we've been marked with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul casts this beautiful vision of what God has done in Christ. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God has made us alive together with Christ. And he casts that vision in a way that, first of all, comes to what we would call a challenging context. And that's the first point I want to make about the vision of the gospel Paul gives us in Ephesians Four throughout the book, but how it comes together in Ephesians 4. It comes to a challenging context. The central challenge of Paul's audience was how to live together in the tensions between Jewish people and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other got along because they had to in some of the cities of the world because they lived in the same city. But there was deep historical animosity, 150 so or years, years or so before Christ. Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem, set himself up as the, 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 
the person to be worshipped in the temple. And then he banned the practice of sacrifice and said anyone, uh, sorry, banned the practice of circumcision and said anyone who had circumcised their child would be killed. And he did that very thing, killing several of the people who had defied his orders and had their baby boys circumcised. There was animosity that had deep roots in history between Jews and Gentiles. But they were in the same church in Ephesus. They were at the same table. They were worshiping together. They were fellowshipping together, sharing life together and serving in mission. It was a challenging context in which Paul called them to live a life worthy of their calling, to bear with one another, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we know that challenge still exists. We live in a challenging context to live out our unity and the vision of the gospel as it comes through Christ because we're so easily distracted by our differences and divisions. Pillar Church has grown as it has in the last 10 years because we named that challenge. Our differences that have divided us over the years, we repented of 10 years ago and said, we want to live as a, as a community that reconciles differences. And in our case, that that immediate difference was RCA, CRC in its nature. And so we hired a pastor, John, who was RCA, and he became the pastor with me, who's CRC. And we lived out those differences in our midst, and we continue to do that. But we live in challenging times when even our synods in the next few weeks will wrestle with the differences. We'll wrestle with staying together and separating. And in the midst of all of that, we have a calling to live a life worthy of our calling in all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another as we try to navigate troubled waters. Our context is challenging because not only in the broader culture where political differences divide people over and over again, the church has bought into that. David Fitch, a church planter in the Chicago area and expert on the church in North America, says this. This is where we are as the church in North America. We cannot help but make enemies in the way we do church. As Christians, we become blind to the antagonisms at work in our lives, both within the church and without. Old habits inherited from Christendom have shaped us to live and indeed even think and thrive on antagonisms. Meanwhile, people outside the church look at us and see only conflict, anger, and even hate. Our witness to Christ is damaged. And as we enter the world, we've lost the wherewithal to engage what God is doing in Christ to save the world. We'd even lost the wherewithal to see that. We live in a challenging context for the basic and profound vision of the gospel because our usual way of doing business is to get distracted by our divisions. This is our context 
a church and a culture that thrives on polarization and on division, on zero-sum politics, of making the other side the enemy that needs to be eliminated. In a recent survey, the Barna organization asked pastors, have you given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year? 42% of the pastors they interviewed said yes. And that's up from 29% last year. And when they pressed and said, what are the reasons that have, have urged you to think about quitting? The top three were stress, loneliness, and political division. Our context means that the gospel challenge to unity is hard. And in contrast to that challenge, or into that challenge, Paul speaks the vision of the gospel. Remarkably, in chapter 2, Paul speaks to the Gentiles and says, look, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God, because Christ is our peace. In his flesh, he has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. He has created one new humanity in his own body in place of the two. And he has put to death the hostility through it. And so Paul can talk about his own calling at the end of chapter 3 as being a servant of this gospel, this mystery, that now the Gentiles have become members of the household of God, fellow heirs, brothers and sisters, sharers in the promises in Christ Jesus in the gospel. The church, Paul says in chapter 3, is now the mystery that shows the powers and authorities in the heavenly places, the rich diversity of God, the rich wisdom of God. We live in a challenging context because our usual way of doing business is to get distracted by the divisions and the gospel calls us into a bigger, grander vision. I want to ask you where you feel the challenge of your context to stay together. Where do you feel the polarization, the division pushing on you? Is it in a family relationship? Is it at work? Is it with a neighbor who just put up a sign in their yard that has started to annoy you? Because admitting it and seeing the challenge is an important step towards catching the vision of the gospel to live a life worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Feeling the challenge also means you're feeling the call, the call to be saints, blessed by God, given an inheritance, redeemed, dead, but alive, part of the body of Christ with all kinds of people who are different from you are, from who you are, but brought together in Christ our peace. And so the second thing I want to highlight is that simple and profound calling to live in this challenging context with a vision of the unity of the Spirit. 
For three chapters, the beginning of the book, Ephesians being six chapters, divided right down the middle by the first verse of chapter 4, I therefore urge you. For three chapters at the beginning, Paul casts this beautiful vision as I've talked about already. You're saints, you're blessed, you're redeemed, you're part of the body of Christ, part of this great mystery. Christ is our peace. You've been saved by grace. It's not of your own doing. You are dead. You are alive. You're incorporated. We're together. This is God's workmanship. And now the animosity of the Jew and Gentile is absorbed in Christ, for he's our peace. All of that beautiful, beautiful portrayal of the gospel only leads to something that makes sense then in chapter 4. Urge you to live a life worthy of this calling with all gentleness and, and humility. The Spirit creates the unity, not us. We only maintain it. And so to be around this great mystery, we ought to be humble and gentle and patient with one another, bearing with one another and making every, every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, as Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of us all who is above all and in all and through all. That calling to live a life worthy of that vision and calling is the center line of the church. It's our central calling, our being. It's what brings us together, not divides us. And so it is why Leslie Newbegin says, the church is the bearer to all the nations of a gospel that announces the kingdom, the reign, the sovereignty of God. It calls us to repent of the false loyalties we have to other powers, to become believers in the one true sovereignty, and so to become corporately a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the one true and living God who is over all nature, all nations, and all human lives. So one of the last days that we were in Ecuador, the president of the Baptist Church in Ecuador spoke to us at breakfast. She was a short woman, about four foot six, of enormous stature. She had a joyful spirit to her and told us a story about how she was called to do church planting because basically nobody else would do it. And then she went to this workshop that Multiplication Network Ministries put on and she began practicing what they taught her. They would go into communities and in one place she told us they decided to have a festival for children on a Friday. And so they did and about 80 kids came out and they had stories of the gospel, they told stories of the gospel, and they sang songs, and they prayed with the children. And then everybody went home. They thought this was going to be a one-off event that would then draw people maybe to, to another church, or something would happen afterwards. But a week later, she was called by one of the women in the community and said, Sister, the children are back at my house where we met. 
you must do something. And so she quickly came there and they, they tried to have a meeting and did it and, and then they went home. And then the next week and the next week it kept happening over and over and finally the woman's, the, the pastor said to the woman who was hosting those meetings, you are now the pastor of these children. And she began to train her and equip her how to pastor in that community and a church began to form of about 50 or 80 people in the community. And over and over again, she said, God began blessing this work that they were doing. And soon she began to work with other denominations and other pastors in this same kind of work, in mission in the world, to bring the good news of Jesus, this mystery that would bring people who are poor and rich, people who are sick and well, those who are outside and inside the church together. And they began to discover God blessing their work all around the area in the cities, prominent neighborhoods around Quito. The church becoming the place where the gospel was thriving and pastors from different denominations who had formerly ignored each other and fought with each other were now collaborating and working together and seeing the blessing of God at work. Previously, she said, they had fought and took shots at each other, but now they would see each other and embrace. In some cases, reconciliation, she said, happened where pastors would ask for forgiveness and receive it from one another because of what they had said and done. When they began living out their calling in a simple and profound way, they were transformed and found their unity. And as we progressed through the week ourselves as pastors on the trip, we also experienced a unity that was emerging among us. Now, I have to tell you that evangelical free pastors from Texas are a lot different than reformed pastors from West Michigan. You can only imagine how that might all work out. There were tensions and awkward moments throughout the week. But as we were stripped of the trappings of our own churches from our own contexts in North America, we began to talk about the basics of the gospel and sharing that and what it meant to do that. And in the midst of that week, it also occurred that one of the pastors had found out about some tests he had the week before that determined that he had cancer. He received that news right while on the trip. And we did what pastors and good Christian friends do for one another at such times. We gathered around him and prayed and wept. Life or death issues also have a way of stripping us from us the trappings and luxuries of life and bringing us to the basics, of humbling us and reminding us of what's most important in life. Sometimes we're humbled against our will, sometimes in spite of it, and sometimes we are humbled because we sign up for it, as I did to go on this trip. And it's at occasions like this that we can recover a sense of the calling to which we have been called.
and commit to living into it again. Later this month, as Dave Cool, who is now helping us as a church develop our own missional engagement around Holland and in the world, he's leading us on a work trip in Allegan to help a single mom with her children renovate her home and spruce up her life. She's unable to do that herself. And, and affordable housing is such a big issue in our part of the world. This is just a small dent in the problem, but an opportunity to join as a faith community, as a church, together to focus on a simple, profound mission to help someone, to bring the kingdom of God, to be a sign, instrument, and foretaste to the world of the kingdom of God. On my last day in Ecuador, we visited the equator. It's amazing to see the compass of your phone go to zero, marking zero latitude, that point between north and south. And it was amazing to stand there with my one foot in the northern hemisphere and the other foot in the southern hemisphere. The equator goes through 12 countries as it wraps the world. I didn't know that before being down there. And right around Quito is where you find the equator at the highest altitude point on land on the earth. And so they're fond of saying it's the center of the earth right there. And right along that equator line, there was a church. I took a picture of it because the yellow line of the equator ran right into the front door down the center of the church. I thought at the time cynically, yeah, this is a big marketing thing. Doesn't every church think it's right at the center of the world? But then as I began to think about it, I thought about, actually, the vision Paul casts for us of the church, being the place where the mystery of the gospel unfolds, where Gentiles and Jews are now members of the same household, that that we are sharers in the promise of, of God, even across our strongest differences. Isn't it true that this is the center of where God should be doing that work? where Gentiles and Jews and whatever differences are reconciled and brought together in the peace of Christ, it's here that we find grace, knowing that we're all dead in our sins and miseries and that we're all made alive by Christ as a gift. It's not of our own doing. And it's here that we're led to the table, the table where Jesus himself took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's here that we find the one body and the one spirit because of the hope of our one calling, the one God, the one baptism, the one Lord, the one God and Father of us all is above all and in all and through all. I want to invite you where you are to find a piece of bread or take some juice. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, take that bread and that cup and know 
that Christ is present and that this is for you, this body and this blood. It is for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.